Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Twitter's Ilana Brooklyn. This is the podcast for people who didn't need a sequel to tell them that Thanos was wrong, because it's obvious that the solution to the poor distribution of resources is eating the rich, not killing half the world, for God's sake. So that's right, tonight is the night where we talk about Avengers Endgame, and my guests tonight are going to be amazing. Uh, Brandon Wilson is back, and if you recall from our coverage of Infinity Wars, he and Stephen Atwell predicted a tremendous amount of what ended up happening in the movie. My jaw was literally on the floor re-listening to the episode, and I, I recommend folks go back and do it, and... um uh, if you have any interest, because I was just stunned by it. But uh, anyway, so once again, here's Brandon Wilson is an L.A. based filmmaker and educator. He has made two micro budget features. The most recent one, Sepulveda, which he co-directed with his wife, Jenna English, is streaming on Vimeo, a former L.A. Uh, unified school district teacher. He currently teaches graduate and undergraduate film courses at UCLA, Columbia College, Hollywood, and also teaches film at the Archer School for Girls. He's been reading comic books on and off for almost 40 years. He blogs occasionally and tweets too much as genius bastard. Uh, Avengers is still his favorite MCU film. And joined this time, uh, we are one of the biggest Wrapped in America experts I know, T. Fugner. T. is the editorial director of comics at King Feature Syndicate. When she's not reading comics at work, she's reading comics for fun, drawing comics, dressing up as comic book characters, or watching comic adaptations on television. Welcome to the show, you guys. Hi. Thanks for having having me back. Thanks for having us both. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to say to our listeners, from here on out, it's just spoilers. Like, (laughs) I don't know why you would listen to a podcast about Endgame if you haven't seen it yet. You know, uh, it's one thing for me to like have had a Shazam podcast that was spoiler free for the first 15 minutes, because I know some of you are probably making up your minds about whether to see it or not. But I feel like the question of whether or not one should see Endgame is answered by, do did you watch the last movie or not? Okay, then that's that. So from here on out, spoilers 100%. And to kick us off, uh, T... What, what was your overall impression of the latest movie? So I was completely shocked to find out that Rosebud was his sled. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I, I was actually really disappointed by this movie. And that's not to say I didn't enjoy it because I thoroughly enjoyed experiencing being in a movie theater on opening night with a lot of very excited people. And everybody is like, exclamations of glee over all of the little things that, you know, people had been hoping for um, or, you know, sort of moments that called back to previous Marvel movies, which there are now 11 years of if you only count MCU. Um, But I didn't feel like it really actually delivered very well on narrative arc. And Mm -hmm it mostly just felt like fan service to me. And I also felt like um, they were, the the filmmakers were more interested in getting the scenes that they wanted into the movie. And because of that, didn't really think about the ramifications um, of some of the social commentary that they were creating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I hear I hear a lot of that relate to quite a lot of that. Um, uh, d- uh, so where do you fall on that, Brandon? 
Um, let's see. I like the film pretty well. I, I did see it a second time just because it's, I just feel almost like if you're going to talk at length about a film, you should see it a second time. So I went, uh, I saw it on Friday and then I went back Sunday at 745 in the morning and the theater was wow. two, was two thirds full. Um, wow. and yeah. And, um, a lot of kids mostly, but yeah, it was two thirds full and, uh, yeah, I, so obviously I've, I've sat through the film a, sec, uh, a second time. I think, like a lot of the Russo brothers films, the, the, it, it feels very, very uneven. There are things that I, th- I thought worked well. There are things that maybe don't work quite so well. I feel like with the exception of Winter Soldier, which is kind of sui generis in their output, mm-hmm. um, because it's such a, it's a very tight story. It's also, and I may just be projecting this on them, I think that's more, it's really the story they were best suited to because you don't have people who can, who can move buildings with their mind or, their, or lift, you know, uh, with class 100 strength or things like that. So right. I think, you know, and they even said, uh, the Russos, that they felt somewhat, um, they weren't sure how to deal with a character like Scarlet Witch when they were first doing um, uh, Civil War. So I, I, I feel like maybe I'm projecting that on them, but it's like, I feel like the, all of these things, it's, it's just ironic that they've gotten this big, the biggest part of the franchise, the sort of flagship, because in a way that maybe isn't isn't their strong suit. And so I think with all of them, with Civil War, with and and both uh, Infinity War and Endgame, you can sort of see that this is not necessarily their jam to have you know so many characters, and sometimes things work, and sometimes things do not. Um, I mm-hmm. yeah, ultimately I enjoyed enough about the film. I do. There's a lot of things to sort of think about, and I've had fun talking about it with my family and with people online and 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 so you know there's well you can't talk very much online because of course it's still you know we're, we're still in the first uh, few couple days and so it's bad form to talk about this publicly so this is actually the first time yeah. i'm talking but uh, about a lot of it <laughs> but uh yeah I, there were enough things that i liked that it it, it it i would bring i would you know i would put it uh, um in the upper half of at least of the output um, but I wouldn't by any stretch call it my favorite. I was, you know, a little bit surprised at how many people were already claiming this is their favorite. I mean, although I guess I get it because of the emotional payoff and the, the sort of sense of this as a, as a, a, a proper threequel to the whole, you know, cause in a, in effect, this is like a threequel, even though this is the 22nd film, it's not even the third Avengers film, but yet it kind of feels like one. It feels because mm-hmm. it has that sense of like wrapping up and this is the, the conclusion yeah. or like Return of the King or Return of the Jedi or any of those things. So anyway. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean for me, I, um, I, I'm not saying I didn't enjoy the movie, but it didn't fully feel like a movie. It, it yeah. definitely <laughs> felt like a sequence of points that were being hit and things that were being conjoined together. And the result was that there's some great moments, no doubt. Right. Um, there's other things I disagree with in some fairly serious ways that I think like undermine some of the themes that yeah. they've been setting out from the start. But ultimately what I think it really did for me, and I, you know, this is, I'm speaking as someone who I really love Winter Soldier. I realized watching this that I just don't think that I love those huge team up movies as much as I like them in comics. Like in comics, I love mm-hmm. team books, particularly D lister team books, though, to be honest, <laughs> because I love the group dynamics. Um, and in the movies with, I feel like the exception of guardians, uh, I like the solo character movies more because you have more depth. It's more thoughtful. Um, and it feels less like 
marketing. I'll tell you for me, one of the biggest turnoffs for the movie was the marketing. I hated the end game marketing. I hate calling it a game. I hated the whole who lives, who dies speculation that the internet was feeding off of. Like that's my least favorite way of interacting with art. Yeah. Uh, this sort of gamification of it. And, and the name itself encouraged that in a way that I think did nobody any favors. Um, I, I'm glad I saw the movie. I, I mean, no question. Uh, um, but, like from the marketing on, I just I don't I I'm not I'm not thrilled. How about so, that? What's funny to me about that is that I I somehow missed some of the stuff you're talking about, Alana. Um, one of the things that happened for me was that um, during the filming of Winter Soldier, some um, still still photography got leaked that very much looked like the setup for the scene immediately post um, Civil War in the comic books where Steve Rogers gets assassinated. And so there was some speculation that Steve was going to die in that movie and come back in a later movie. And then they did Civil War. And of course, Steve dies at the end of Civil War. And so there was a lot of speculation then. Oh, okay, are they going to kill him now? And then he's going to come back in a later movie. Or maybe they'll go a different way and kill Iron Man or kill a different character. And I just got so tired of people speculating that somebody was going to die and then nobody died that I, by now, I was just kind of like, okay. And it didn't even occur to me to speculate speculate about who was going to die. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, one of the things the movie did right was having people go to kill Thanos and kill Thanos in the beginning of the movie. And I think like if, you know, even though like the way they structure the plot, actually they have to go and redo the task again later, even if they'd had that just end that time in the beginning of the movie. And then the rest of the whole movie was time caper. Like that would have been awesome too. I, I thought killing I thought think killing Thanos quickly was was bold and interesting. Um, that that is one yes. decision they made that I liked. Yeah, I would I, w- I would absolutely agree. Um, especially having literally suspended the audience, you know, and, and you know for a whole year, um, just left us on sort of tenter hooks about what was going to happen. It was mm-hmm. yeah, very almost like them responding to okay, we know we kept you long, waiting long enough, let's do this. But of course, the rugs pulled out from be, from under you because you know killing him's almost is kind of doesn't really do much, um, you know, for anybody. It just you know aside, I mean, it's somewhat satisfying, but it, mm-hmm. it doesn't reverse anything. So I thought that was a you know one of several sort of bold choices. And yeah, to respond to what you were saying before, Alana, yeah. I I think that happens with I felt that way about Civil War, I felt that way about Infinity War, right, that this is, is this a movie or is this just a kind of a collection of scenes that are kind of coming together, whereas Wonder Soldier felt like a movie, it's got a beginning, it's got a middle, it's got an end, it, it's very clear um, the, but yeah, I feel like the bigger Rousseau films, and I don't know if it's them, I don't know if it's just the nature of these kind of big films they just, they don't have this, they do kind of feel like this collection and, and, and to T's point, yeah, I, I there, there's been an almost ghoulish, almost yeah, kind of interest in seeing Iron, uh, Captain America die for for quite a while, and I don't, <laughs> and more than anyone, even like in the the end of the teaser for Infinity War where he's holding the gauntlet, it was like everybody, he's gonna die, he's gonna die. It's almost like, and I, I did kind of appreciate that we actually don't see that, like because it just yeah, this has been something that people have just been more so than Iron Man or anyone else. People have just been kind of waiting for the death of of of, of Captain America for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because he's such a Christ figure that 
that it's people have this need to see him crucified and or because he's this guy who is not really super powered who constantly is being put into situations where he's fighting people who are vastly more powerful than himself and i don't know if that's I got mean, anything think, to do with it i think a lot of it comes specifically from you know what steve is as captain america and the fact that it's something that if you're a longtime comics reader like I am, you get very used to this idea of, you know, Steve is somebody who has been put in the position of representing and symbolizing something he ends up really deeply disagreeing with. And so there's always sort of this, there's always this kind of disjointedness between who Steve Rogers is and who Captain America is, and there's a lot of play, narrative play in the comics um, with death and rebirth, and believe it or not, not as much as literally as you might see with some other Marvel characters, um, but he does, you know, but he also does die in the course of a lot of the stories that they've been retelling in the movies, and so I think people expected it partly because that's what they expect from those narratives. Mm-hmm. I also think that, like, you know, the movie has been setting up the protégés for, for Cap in a way that they haven't really done for some of the other characters. Yeah. I mean, we knew they would also be killing Iron Man for contract reasons and <laughs> for some symmetry. But um, with Cap, it was sort of like we have the next Cap waiting in the wings. Uh, and I, I also want to talk actually about the the, the Cap storyline, like how that concluded. I, I'd heard people speculating that, you know, maybe Cap's Cap's happy ending is that he gets to go back in the past and live out his life. And I really struggled with that because for me, like I, Captain America is very much a character about polit about like political engagement. And my Captain America doesn't go to the past without like, mm-hmm. I don't know, stopping the MLK assassination and like doing something about the AIDS crisis. And I feel like he also would realize in which the ways that going back and changing history could be problematic. And so I could just imagine him feeling tortured this entire time. Like, sure, he gets to be with Peggy Carter, a.k.a. the only woman he's ever had chemistry with. But by the same token, and God, I love Haley Atwell. um, But by the same token, it's like, that's torture to know the to have prescience of the future and be unable to act on it. Like when you have this great moral center of like leftist awesomeness that that cap has is that a happy ending for him really i think the movie says it is but i have a hard time believing it yeah i would say that the one of the things that did not first of all i think in game most of the times signed the physics of the time travel it's pretty baffling and i i feel like they just didn't care and they just sort of like yeah. we're doing what we're doing and <laughs> we don't really care about any of your nerd rules and they just sort of just dismissed it uh, you know with dialogue um and i really yeah i i also like on the one hand sure cap being reunited with with uh um, you know with peggy carter is sort of um the the guy certainly deserves it but yeah i do think there it raises a lot of questions about um, you know, also, yeah, I, I didn't really, and it just, it's also unclear uh, at, by the end of the film, like, is he, did he, is this some other timeline that he's coming back from to give the shield? Is it, is this ours since they're basically saying you can sort of travel through time and change what you want. It doesn't change anything or, but it does change things. So that's completely unclear and chaotic. And I guess we'll, we'll never really get it straight. And I don't think, but cause yeah, I don't, I don't really imagine that cap has been quietly living up 
about in life while all this the MCU is happening, uh, you know, simultaneously with all these events. So yeah, it's and, and on top of what you said, right? It's like how how is Captain America just going to suddenly be that that? Yeah, I mean, the guys earned some happiness, but I mean, yeah, to, yeah. to, to be to just sort of uh, turn his back on everyone and uh, you know, in the name of uh, you know heterosexual uh, you know domestic <laughs> yeah. bliss. It doesn't really feel right um, for that, and of course, you know my prediction, which is funny. I, I had the prediction I gave on the on the show a year ago, and ended up yes. being more accurate than what it evolved into in the intervening years. And shout out to Stephen Atwell for he completely nailed it with, with the time travel. The time travel. He called yeah. it completely uh, a year ago yeah. that that was going to be a play a big part in it. Um, and I had said oh, that Iron Man would do it, and I but then I began to think that the stones would be entrusted to each of the original six and that they would there and then cap would get the soul stone which would allow him to sort of be with um with with peggy because you know of her sort of you know being a spirit and all that um but you know instead we get this which is more definitive more you know that he's 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 living with her in the real world but it somehow raises more questions than yeah then i mean if, if you care to examine them beyond just leaving the theater going that was great good for him you know so one of the questions that it raised for me is a little bit different from what Alana was talking about, um, is that we know from previous movies that Peggy was happily married <laughs> right. and had kids. Right. And right. she has a niece who presumably knows everything about her Aunt Peggy's life and that her aunt, whoever Aunt Peggy's kids are, and theoretically would have known whoever she was married to but then hooks up with steve yeah no wonder they never felt realistic so (laughs) so either sharon's got some really weird shit going on or steve went back in time and completely upended peggy's happy ending in order to get his which is not something steve rogers would do no, mm, that is a very good point. No, and I mean, that, and that's, and to me, that is the big problem with this film. Is right, they just obviously don't give a shit about any of that. They just are like, we're gonna give Cap his happy ending. We're gonna, you know, do, do our victory lap through the MCU, and we're gonna make mm-hmm. changes. But the changes don't actually impact anything. Uh, any, they don't impact anything that you're seeing. I mean, right down to the idea that you know the film decides to play it both ways. In that, okay, we're gonna bring everyone back, but we're gonna keep everyone who's here because of course you're expecting that that's going to be the the thing that they're forced to the choice they're forced to make the choice to make yeah and the film just says nobody has to make a choice we're going to just have it all it's all going to be good so we're going to not we're going to now the whole thing is five years in the future and yet people are just back after being gone for five years and they all know the the biggest one it really hit me seeing uh peter parker and ned in the hallway and i'm like wait a second so did everyone who peter parker's close to all of the people in his circle did they also get snapshot because now they're back because otherwise mj would be in you know college at least if not out of college and you know yeah we'd be and and, and peter would still be uh, a junior so yeah i was totally <laughs> wondering about that because i was thinking about they're doing far from home this summer right and how the hell are they doing that if you've got people who now have aged up like you know, like, what's going to happen now if, like, Flash Thompson's in college, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, which I, guess, I, like, yeah. I suppose, I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with MJ being, like, five years older than Peter, and then you can have him hook up with Gwen in high school, and then, like, meet, meet MJ later, but that's not what they're doing. No, so, and, and I'm, and I don't want to get into, like, the plausibilist thing, but, I mean, right. it just, it's just that it's begging, you know, it's a big thing that they're doing, and I think I just, it does yeah. speak to, like, the sort of overall just kind of like we're going to just do what we want to do which gets to the fan service question which absolutely is kind of the central question of the film really is you know what is fan service is the, when is it not fan service is fan service inherently a terrible thing and that's really the conversations I've been having and the conversations yeah. that I'm seeing sort of percolate about this concept you know um, in the film and actually I think it, it raises oh definitely <laughs> and like for me it's very much a fan service film um I feel like it's also specifically fan service for one specific audience, more so than a lot of the different audiences that have come to MCU over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I actually love fan service. I think that one of the really important things about media, and particularly media in the age of social media, is that there are really interesting ways to have dialogues with your audience through um emerging work and it's impossible to say that a serialized work today isn't being influenced by the people who consume it but at the same time if it should be being influenced by that not be just so i think assiduously devoted to showing people exactly what they've been hoping for Mm. um to the point where you kind of lose the essence of what made that thing something people hoped for to begin with. Well, I'll tell you one thing that people were hoping for that we did not see, and that was Okoye playing a significant role in the story. <laughs> when they had all of those, right? When they had all of those, I want to call them breakout groups because I run a conference which just ended. But when they had all of the time travel team ups, you know, they could have had some really interesting pairings, and I'm mm-hmm. glad that they brought back Rocket with. Uh, Thor, because that's really interesting. I enjoyed the way Scott sort of threw an extra wrench and layer into Steve and Tony working together. But like Okoye was clearly very active during the missing t- the five years lapse as an Avenger. You don't have any active black women. You hardly have any women at all. The fans love Okoye. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when they realized that they'd forgotten to have any black women on the promotional poster, she's the one they threw on. I, I just... Like to me, immediately, like out of all the women who are missing in action, who it made sense to have be part of the time travel heist, mm-hmm. Okoye, she's like a great utility player, and everyone was looking for her. Mm-hmm. Well, and she's also so well suited to a heist too. We've seen her do like oh, yeah. awesome disguise stuff and martial arts, yeah. and like we know that those are things that she excels at. And it would be it would have been so much fun to see her do some of the sorts of heisty stuff that we see her do in Black Panther. And yeah, yeah, numb, no. No. Well, one thing I want to give the movie credit for is uh, two. There's two political moments that I just really wanted to shout out. One of them, uh, Spencer Ackerman had voiced so perfectly on Twitter, which was that there's like literally a line that we think is said by Cap, where he says, "I want families to be reunited and a sense of normalcy to be restored to the world." <laughs> yeah. Which is such a what's the word I'm looking for? Exactly as Cap is, like New Deal Democrat white man analysis of the problem and the emergency that we're in. Um, because it's true, like 
if you're the New Deal Democrat white man, then you are looking for a sense of normalcy to be restored to the world. Uh, for a lot of people in more immediately traumatized situations, the normalcy that of life before the Trump administration was also not acceptable. Um, but like, I appreciate the sentiment behind it, absolutely. And I, I did think that it was very clear social commentary. But the other moment that just really killed it for me as social commentary is like you have in the big fighting scene at the end, you've got the icon of New Deal America, the spirit of New Deal America, Captain, uh, you know, Captain America. He's at his most beaten, like he's actually like bloody in the face in a way we've never seen him before. And he's completely mm-hmm. beaten down. And who comes in to rescue him? But Africa. <laughs> like suddenly <laughs> Africa emerges and is like, here. We will help you with our get out the vote efforts and electoral power. And then like not long after that, they're like, oh, yeah. And also like some women um, in a girl power moment that's actually undermined by the rest of the movie. But um, (laughs) but like it was clearly like we know. But but I do think that like the Russo brothers are very much saying like the white progressive man is going to get rescued by by, you know, people of African heritage. Like I thought that that was like. At the surface level, social commentary. I don't know. I don't. I don't think they're smart enough to do that. Like, I completely read that as like, hey, you know, I read it as fan service as like, we're gonna put all of our black people on the screen because most of them have been dead for this whole movie, and now we're gonna put all of our ladies on the screen because most of them have been dead for this whole movie, and we killed the major one who wasn't dead, and so like. To me, when you have to put all of your characters of the same marginalized group on the screen at the same time, you're not doing a really good job of representation. I would bet money, lots of it, that that was a reshoot the after Black Panther came out. Like, the, to have the first portal open... And you hear Sam, by the way. You hear Sam's on your left, you know, of course, that callback. But then it opens up and you get, you know, Okoye, um, T'Challa, and Shuri. I would bet anything that that wasn't initially, that that was part of their sort of last round of reshoots. Because if I'm not mistaken, they started shooting um, in 2017 and that would have gone... They would have been shooting for a good deal of into almost 2018. So by the time Black Panther's out, they probably shot um, most of Endgame. But yeah, that does seem like, of course, that's the person that's going to get the biggest applause after having right. this, you know, wildly successful film. Both playtimes I saw, people clapped when they saw that Black Panther was back. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I, I wonder. And yeah, I don't, I don't really see the the Russos as having that kind of being that kind of uh, sophisticated, having that analysis. But it's a great, it's a good read, nevertheless. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I, it's interesting because I think this film doesn't. I've been thinking about a lot about the film, and I feel like whereas with uh, you know Infinity War, there was a very obvious sort of political reading, even if it was kind of shallow, that you know mm-hmm. this is another work of art that's trying to help us deal with the fact that Trump got elected um, and what happens when the unthinkable happens and so forth and yeah. how all these things can come together, you know, it can happen. This one I feel like is a lot less, there's a less that you can sort of look for and so it, it becomes this kind of, most of the discussion so far at least becomes about sort of, you know, the fan service question or some of the larger issues with the MCU and it's not quite as, you know, a little less political than I would say than a lot of the best, more recent uh, MCU films. And it might be because Thanos is basically reduced to being pretty much just your standard villain in this one after getting a whole film to sort of effectively be the main character. Although I'll I'll tell you, Brand... Yeah. 
Sorry, go ahead, T. So I was going to say, well, I feel like the thing about this movie was that it was trying to do something. It was, I think it was trying to be a movie about aftermath and about PTSD and about how people respond to a hopeless situation um, when they realize that they can't fix it. And... I don't, you know, and I think the issue is that it didn't necessarily succeed at that because so many of its depictions of those things were really horrific. Um, You have Hawkeye deciding that he's going to dress up as a culturally appropriative character and then (laughs) go to Japan and kill Asian people. Um, And then you have the whole thing with Thor that could have been really, really smart and interesting but is completely reduced by the number of fat jokes that are thrown at him um, to the point where even when they were trying to do really poignant scenes with Thor, the entire audience was laughing the whole time. Yeah, it was terrible. I I was really thankful that some critics had just given people like a trigger warning yeah. around making fun of fat people like in the movie. I There's a really good article by... Um, C.K. Stewart over at uh, Comics Beat called Why Thor's Transformation in Avengers Endgame Wasn't Funny at All. Definitely recommend folks read it. Um, you know, it would have been it would have been really interesting to actually have Thor in, a, uh, you know, like dealing with that trauma in a way that they weren't going to be playing it for laughs. Yeah. Even if it included weight loss, I mean, weight gain, and, you know, treating it respectfully and then seeing a fat Thor go and kick ass would have been fucking amazing too, you know? I mean, yeah. he did kick some ass, but they, as, 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 as um, CK points out in, in, in his article, like you, you actually, when he starts kicking ass, they don't shrink him down, but they shoot him differently so that you don't actually notice that he's still fat. It's pretty yes. wild. Um, and th- so that was really disappointing to me. Um, but I, I also think that like, whew, I, you know, I, I, going back to the, 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 the earlier moment with, um, T'Challa coming in, like I, I cheered when T'Challa got the, uh, the gauntlet because oh, I yeah. felt like, oh, finally somebody competent has it. Not that Spider-Man isn't competent. <laughs> he's tremendously competent for a young man, but he's like a young man. I, I have far greater faith in T'Challa being able to like not get that yoinked off of him. And yet... I rem- well, I remember moments I cheered at, like, I didn't cry. And I know people were just, yeah. a lot of people were, were crying. I, I think the people next to me were crying. I, I don't know. I mean, I thought that they did a great job of bringing the story of Tony Stark to a close. So good that I actually wasn't even sad because I was like, yes, this is all very fitting. Um, and like, I don't know. I, you know, Natasha dying, I, there's a big debate over whether or not it's fridging. I, I argue that it's actually not, even though I think it was the wrong choice. I think it's the wrong choice because it should have been our little appropriative man pain friend, um, yes. you know, uh, Jeremy Renner, who I just like get rid of get, that Hawkeye is not my Hawkeye and he should just go away. Uh, but, Nat- but Natasha has like so much development and makes it very clear why she does what she does. I think it was the wrong choice, but I don't, I don't think it counts as a fridging. But what made me sad is that Tony has this really great funeral at the end. And like, does Natasha not even have a <laughs> yeah. funeral? No, she well, doesn't. I feel what, like the reason happening? that you can't consider Natasha's death a fridging is because fridgings imply that the men have feelings about them. Ooh. <laughs> and like, they give so little time and space to anybody having any feelings about Natasha's death. Um, 
and and unfortunately natasha is probably the character who you do see at the beginning um having sort of the most respectfully portrayed um kind of trauma reaction to mm-hmm. everything that she's been through and everything that happened and that she's the person who like becomes obsessive about keeping everybody together and she becomes and you see hypervigilance and you see um the way she almost you know the way Scarlett Johansson plays her she's twitchy and nervous and that's just probably the best portrayal they have of what someone might go through after something like this and yeah then they kill her because it is it is the choice that I can see that character making but I feel like if you're gonna have that character make that choice you need to have at least like two other ladies around um, cause it was, it felt really uncomfortable to watch all the scenes after she died, where now you've got the evil doppelganger Nebula, Nebula back. So Nebula's not in those scenes and it's just mm-hmm. a whole bunch of dudes standing around making decisions together. Here, and, here. And it's very interesting that, um, in both, on Vormir, in both films, the lone woman uh, from the original sort of group of the mm-hmm. sort of charter members is sacrificed in both yeah. films, just as on the on the heels of Captain Marvel and this sort of sense that there's a new day and now we're gonna you know and their little a force moment which I'm sure we'll talk about but it, <laughs> right it rings hollow because right you've now yeah. sacrificed the women the two women that you're you're sort of pioneering female characters um, you know and obviously we get nebulous. Um, you know that the, in the previous film, and yeah, it's tough with with Black Widow because you know it, it's sound. You understand why she wants to do that, but right as an audience member, I mean, for, for one thing, I mean, Hawkeye certainly. I don't think, at least in the movie version, I don't think he's anybody's favorite Avenger. Yeah. I almost want to say that definitively, he's no one's favorite I think Avenger. It's true. Right? Yeah, he's no one's favorite <laughs> Avenger. So there's that, and you feel for him in the beginning with the family, but then when he goes, um, you know, when he goes Punisher. And and of course, then Got there's it. that right. I know, but I'm right. like, uh, there's that go part ahead. of me that wants to see John Bernthal in one scene. Go, you know, man, I can't work with you. You're you're just you're too much. But um, you know, I'll, I'll never let it go that the Netflix Marvel is uh, has been shut out because that that would have been a place. But in any case, right, you get that scene where it's like, well, this guy needs redemption beyond just like who's really earned redemption here? Is it Natasha or is it is it is it Clint who has now become this murdering machine who goes to places yeah. where you know with and kills lots of non-white uh criminals or you know i mean i was expecting the line like look i'm i don't i can't go back to my family like this i want them back but i don't yeah. i'm not the, i'm not that good the guy i was and you know and i get you know and you understand of course that he, he's got the family she doesn't and that of course touches on that sore spot from age of ultron so yeah. it's it's of course you know I understand that the Russos are family guys. You know, fun fact, I, I said this on the last podcast, I'm pretty sure Joe Russo was a year behind me in film school. So I didn't know him well. We had one conversation, but I do do remember at the time he had a newborn baby, which is, you know, not very typical in film school. Most of us are, especially back then, we're not in families and everything. So, you know, I know family's important to him. And so that, mm, that, that, that's, that's, you know, uh, um, something that I think people agree with. But then you also feel like, you know, 
there's a part of you that sort of bristles at the idea that this is the only way to be fulfilled. These are the people who get to, you know, yeah. so, you know, because they have settled into heterosexual domesticity. And, you know, even Tony, I mean, yes, he's grown up and this is a good thing. And, you know, Tony could be insufferable. And it, the scenes with Morgan work and, you know, Robert Downey Jr. plays them well. And it does give it a poignance that he, he, he you know, when he's finally achieved this now, he has to sort of sacrifice, make this, you know, incredible sacrifice. But you're right. It's just it. it it's I. I just yeah. I. I do kind of think that the 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 it, it it does leave a bad taste in your mouth that Hawkeye that Black Widow has to be sacrificed at the all at this altar of sort of you know heterosexual family life because she's refusing to sort of um, you know she's not either not given the opportunity to be a part of it she certainly can't conceive so we know that and so yeah so, so she she's sacrificed so I get why people are having well, I think problems that one with of the that. Theme- I feel like one of the recurring themes I put together in my notes on this actually was a theme about bodies. Like you see how disassociated Nebula is from her body. Like when she's, you know, Mm -hmm. her arm is burned when she goes in to reach for the stone and she like doesn't even, like I know it's not her arm in some ways, but it is her arm in others. She doesn't truly react to it. She's just sort of disassociated from her body, both in the present and in the past in a really disturbing way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we have the way they're treating Thor's body, which was like, questionable and effed up as hell um but one of the things that uh that they that the movie did get right i i was stephen brought stephen adwell brought this up when we were we saw the movie together when we saw it um uh, he was saying that as an amputee he felt like the way they handled um roadie's uh disability and like having this braces and he says something like it's not the same but you make it work Mm -hmm. he's like that was really relatable and he thought that they did a good job on that um and i i was pleased to see expanded work for for Don Cheadle in this um you know he doesn't get his own story arcs but he does get his own weight so like while they should be doing more giving his own story arcs and treating him as an equal which they do not treat him as an equal like at least the character has its own is a weighty character is a you know is, is is a weighty character for him to portray and it was it was good to hear that someone you know who's an amputee felt like uh that they'd gotten they'd gotten that part of it at least feeling okay um, so speaking of buddy parts, I want to talk about Cap's ass. Um, in, I, I should say America's this, ass. Right. America's ass. Actually, you know, I, I, ass. I, I, I left. I left the movie saying, "Oh, I'm really glad they've given me another nickname to use to refer to my husband in public in awkward situations." But actually, so we actually have a listener question from T's husband Jay that I want to now read to us. That I hope that we reflect on and can offer some insight into because truly I feel like it is an honor to be asked a listener question from explain the X-Men podcast. So Jay writes, uh, I would very much like to hear your panelists discuss the concept of quote America's ass as it relates to the super soldier serum, bodily autonomy and conceptions of identification versus ownership. And I'm like, yeah, oh my God, that's a great question. Let's talk about that. (laughs) T, do you have any thoughts about this? Um, Sure, I have some thoughts about this. So actually, one of the things that I think spurred Jay asking this question to begin with was my asking the question, was it America's ass before Steve took the serum? Um, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me about Steve Rogers, and particularly the way Chris Evans has portrayed Steve Rogers, is that Steve's always been very self-conscious of his body. Um, and I don't mean self-conscious in that he thinks he looks bad, but he starts out as this very tiny person with disabilities. He's got asthma 
Um, he's got some other health issues and then turns into Captain America pretty much in the course of a minute, you know? And so if you watch, if you watch the first Avenger, he is so clearly out of place in his body. And then you see little bits of that come back over the series. Um, I think less so in the more recent films, but it's always been something that he's just never, you know, you get this sense that Steve's never quite comfortable in this body, doesn't necessarily always perceive his body as being his body, and it was given to him by the United States government. So whose body is it really? And that's something that comes up a lot in the comics where, you know, he was given his powers by the U.S. government. Who controls those? Who owns those? Um, who does he have a responsibility to because of those? And so to see... St baby Steve from from First Avenger get to the point where he can look at his doppelganger and be like, gosh, that's a fine ass. It's just like, it's really heartwarming to me that he's grown up that much and that he's also sort of shed a lot of his self-consciousness about his body and what he looks like and the image that he portrays or projects. That's really beautiful. Mm. That's really beautiful. Like I, I had really looked at it previously as just being like, I appreciate that this is a movie that acknowledges that people look at male bodies with desire. And the Russo brothers have hit that before. And that's one yeah. of the reasons why they're like good at their jobs. Um, it was less of a thing in the last movie, if I'm not mistaken. Wait, wh what movie was Thor having a freak out with his shirt off for no particular reason? That wasn't the last one. That was, that was, that was Civil War, right? Okay. But, um, but, but uh, I, so I was like, okay, good. This movie acknowledges that like the, that people want to see Cap's ass, which in and of itself, it's sad to say that that's a feminist thing that like that that's acknowledged, but like it is. Um, but it's true. Like I, I just think that I think the point you raise is like totally right on. Mm -hmm. um, and any any thoughts on that? There? Uh, Anyone? Else? Yeah. Um, it's funny because it is obviously a throwaway line, and it's, it's sort of light. But no, it does raise this issue, and in a way, I guess it kind of you, you almost have to forgive. If uh, Cap, I mean, and the thing he struggled with the whole time is to like, can is basically, can I have anything? You know, like I, I've taken this mm. serum and I now have this body yeah. and I now have this responsibility. Can I just have one thing? I have to give up Peggy. I have to give up the world that I knew. You know, my best friend. And so in Civil War, you know, yeah, you you, you do kind of feel for the guy that he's finally made one choice that um, you know that for himself and that it causes you know this rift and and so much sort of um you know uh unrest and then yeah so then the coming back to that um you know i enjoyed cap a lot in general in this film and just seeing yeah. how where he'd come from i thought you know just the even his reaction to his sort of um 2012 doppelganger um with the suit which i which i almost saw as like a sort of oh, meta yeah. thing yeah. about the fact that i feel like joss whedon never really understood cap or never really especially in in the first avengers age of mm -hmm. ultron maybe he's he's sort of a little bit warmed up because you know maybe he's seen winter soldier or, or something i don't know but i feel like in the 2012 avengers it's just very clear who we didn't really identified with um and it wasn't it wasn't steve it was much more tony and not really seeing steve as anything but but more than like a straight man and someone sort of you know to, to, yeah. sort of and so yeah, and he, that he's come a long way from there. Um, and yeah, I mean, it is America's ass, right? Because it's like, they, they literally gave it to him. And, and so, um, 
there it's a joke but right it does kind of have this undercurrent of like yeah this who's does he own does he actually have you know he does he he's had to fight for sort of ownership of his body because he's you know been made into something a weapon and, and also this sort of totem for the country so Again, yeah, it's it's tough, and we'll never have a satisfactory answer because I don't unless they do some sort of uh, project about these sort of lost years, if they can explain the lost years, which I'm not sure that they can about how any of this works. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, it, it it's if anyone can be forgiven for a certain amount of selfishness, certainly you know Steve Rogers can. But you know, at a certain point. Mm-hmm. It, at what point does that does his sort of need for his own autonomy just completely violate the the, the you know the character's architecture, you know? Well, speaking of looking great, <laughs> I was very happy with Carol's hair story. Like we began with seeing Carol Carol showing up with right. hair and makeup that seemed out of character and like a step backwards. Right. And then I don't know at what point in the production they were like, no, actually we're going to give Carol the hair. That you want. I don't know when they were like, we want to give Carol the hair that you want to see her right. with, but they eventually did do that. And it's not even like a bisexual bob. They like straight up gave her like they gave her lesbian hair and it looks wonderful on her. Yes. And it's remarked upon. And I, I, it's interesting, like, her hair is, like, you know, they talk about, like, oh, this this is the MCU movie that has a gay moment because uh, I mentioned something under my breath in a support group and I'm not a superhero character and I'm unnamed, which is, like, like yeah. I think it's fine for the Rooster Brothers to have that character, but it's not fine for them to talk about that character like it matters because it doesn't. Uh-huh. Um, but the, so, so, so to this point, the gayest thing in the movie is Carol's hair, especially <laughs> since we don't see any interactions whatsoever between, like... Steve and the other like other characters like so the gayest thing is Carol's hair (laughs) applause to Carol's hair yeah although that's another thing that I was really disappointed that we don't see Maria and we don't see Monica in this movie at all yeah Yeah. we don't know what happened to them and I was really like the thing that I was expecting from this movie was that part of the whole passing the torch would involve um you know characters like grown-up Monica showing up um you get a little bit of it with you get a little bit of it with um you know you kind of get the like presage for stature and maybe um you know uh Clint's daughter uh but there was no Monica and that was so disappointing um and mostly because obviously you know I expect that Carol and Maria have been keeping in touch and are still married. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, so it was, it could have been gayer. Yeah. It, yeah. It's- and, and, you know, and, and you get this moment with, you, you, you get to see this whole story with Ant-Man playing out with his daughter. And we don't get that equivalent with Carol at all with Maria, even though Maria is definitely, I'm sorry, Monica. Yeah. Monica is definitely her daughter in the construction of this movie. I mean, what do folks think about the centrality of Scott? to the plot here. I, I thought it paid off pretty well, and I thought it was good. Yeah, I, I thought that um, it was a great choice to have Scott kind of really come into his own because, you know, he was, yes, he was in Civil War, but that was kind of, you know, more of just sort of a comic relief and not, it was nice to have yeah. him finally kind of take his place amongst the heroes and really be the one who is, you know, who's got the idea, the one who is like the obsessed, mm-hmm. the one who has to really convince everybody else that it can work. So good on him. Um, I don't know why Cassie Lang aged 10 years and five years. I'm not, I would like to have someone explain uh, what, what's the science behind the fact that she's like, she was like seven or eight in uh, last summer and now, or, or nine, okay, and now she looks like she's 18 years old. But okay, so be it. But um, 
in any case, yeah, a, a certain amount of that is 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 expected, and it's under you know that we're going to have um, you know put certain characters that are not from the first generation, sort of moving them up a little bit. But it's like the, with a movie like this, you're always going to be frustrated. There's so many things that you know, yeah, whether it's um, you know the the Rambo's uh, and Carol and her sort of finally interacting with sort of the 21st century Earth. Um, I mean, nobody's really a big fan of Star-Lord right now, but I mean, Star-Lord is back on Earth for the first time since he was abducted. And I get it. it was, oh, shit. You know, point. it's like they, the movie can't be five hours long. Maybe there'll be a cut one day, and they, they, I, I'm sure there is a, a cut that's five hours long. But, right, they, it's just, there's so many characters. There are so many combinations that you spend days thinking, like, we oh, didn't but- get to see these two interact um, because there's just so many. Yeah. I mean... So the thing is that the movie doesn't have to be five hours long, but at the same time, if the movie is going to be three hours long, they probably should have used Hope instead of Scott because, again, they added one Mm -hmm. more white dude instead of a lady or a person of color or maybe a lady of color, which is what Maria would have been if she'd been there or Monica would have been if she'd been there. Yeah, the balance was really bad. Yeah, and so, like, those sorts of things, I, I think, like... Paul Rudd is absolutely delightful as Scott Lang, and I'm all, he's absolutely delightful to watch. And the whole time heist thing, like, it's his thing. And right. so, like, that was a really clever way of doing that. But I'm still, like, I'm still really angry that um, Jan or really any incarnation of the Wasp as the only 05 comic Avenger didn't get her own solo movie when all of the dudes got their own solo movies and Captain America got one and he's not an 05 Avenger and so for that to then be like well you know what we're gonna do we're gonna give another dude more story um was really frustrating it also is like pretty clear like the only female character who they did anything really to expand on at all in this movie was nebula yeah i don't think that they really built on any of the other women's stories in any significant way i mean we do get this check back in with renee russo's uh, with freya you know which i I actually never saw thor 2 because my understanding is it was bad so why would i do that to myself um but that people you know were very upset with how how little they'd used the character before i think that you know she they did they did a much more meaningful job with her in this but like really the only woman in this who had any additional development of her own is nebula um i mean what do you folks think about her final sacrifice um which was also a uh, a listener question. Yeah, um, and I do want to say that Freya or Frigga, I can't ever tell which one they use in the. There's one in the comics and there's one in the films, but I was. It's Frigga. Okay, in the films. yeah. So okay, I, I was I was yeah, I was real. actually kind of pleased to have her back and that we didn't need you know Odin. I think we've all seen enough of Odin, frankly, and that was actually a nice. I mean, if one must go back to Thor: The Dark World, and yeah, it is the it is the least of the uh, of the twenty two films. But I thought that was an interesting thing to sort of redress the fact that yeah, she her character completely got short shrift, and it was a it was a very nice scene, and and I, and, and I appreciated that. Uh, in general, right? I mean, it, it is. I think the, the 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 film definitely struggled. Even Carol 
doesn't really get to have as much of an impact because I don't know if there's, Mm -hmm. it's like she, because she's new and because she's so powerful, they've got to sort of keep, you know, they've got to keep her, she's got to be the showstopper to come in and take the ship down. She can't be there all along because otherwise there's not enough excitement. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I I mean, hopefully this is the sort of the end of, this is the closing of the sort of the chapter in this whole um, you know, era of the MCU. There's, you know, hopefully, you know, there seems to be some changes happening um, because, yeah, it was pretty imbalanced after, and and only is sort of exacerbated by sort of the just the formation moment that that's there. Which, yeah, I know my my, my wife who's who, who watches these films. She she kind of also rolled her eyes at it and felt like it was just like she didn't feel what she should have felt, and she just felt like it was, you know, a, a, an empty gesture that other that wasn't. Uh, um, that wasn't uh, uh, really supported by the rest of the film because yeah, it is a it is a very you know dude centric centered uh, uh, um, storyline. Otherwise, um, even Valkyrie, you know, only gets so much. And mm-hmm. yes, at the end, she is now she's now the king of. She gets a peg. Yeah, she does get her. She gets her horse. She gets to she gets to kick some ass. And yeah. I mean, and of course, this is the other thing that one one thinks about is like, what's the future here? Like, where are we going? So is you know. Valkyrie is now, you know, he says king, which I thought I think is very interesting that, you know, you're the king they deserve or something to that effect. He doesn't say queen, you yeah. know, and so is she going to sort of be the new Thor in a, in a sense? Is she going to sort of do what they did with sort of Jane Foster Thor in the in the comic books? Uh, I don't know. I mean, to, to, or to a degree. I think they're going to really have her. I think they're going to have her really be focused as like the leader of the Asgardians on Earth. Yeah. And which means I think she's going to be very marginalized. Like if I were her, I think having her be a leader of the Asgardians on earth is a very, is really great. Like that's a great role for her to have. But in terms of the narrative of the movies, I think it writes her out of the story largely. It's basically making her a high elf. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I think that that's bullshit. And I, I, I was, I was very relieved to see that the, that the Asgard, as someone who was very emotionally invested in the well-being of the Asgardians ever since we decided that they were space yeah. refugees. I um, was very pleased to see them and like, especially with like the various like pro-Jewish anti-Zionist analysis that I might give to bear on the first movie. Uh, I was very happy to see them like making their way on earth and like having a, a place that they were, you know, living in. And like, that was, that was a nice, that was yeah. a nice thing to see. But I just think this is them writing her out, which is ridiculous. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, like that little brief clip of, of every every instant, every two seconds that we have of Loki is just a complete joy. Like I I remain skeptical oh, yeah. of the fact that there is actually going to be a Loki TV series. I, I don't believe that that's true. I'll believe it when I see it. Like I just don't believe it. But like, um, you know, I actually thought that they were going to work Loki into the uh, the heist. Of, yes. Um, yeah, Frank and I were talking about that. We were like, we thought he was going to come in and do that, uh, but it's fine that he didn't. But just for some, but it's crazy to me that watching him being in his bedroom, like playing catch with himself, and like in, not in his bedroom, in his in his cage, is like instantly charming. And you're like, how is this even possible? That's not human. I'm very um, excited about the fact that there is somewhere a Loki running around in 2012 with an extra mm-hmm. space stone, and we don't yeah. know where he is. Yeah. No, I think that that's what the TV show is going to be. That's, yeah. But I also don't think the TV show is real. Like, I just can't believe that they're actually going to be making... <laughs> same with the Steve and Bucky one. Like, they're really going to have these, like, top-level movie stars. I don't know. 
maybe. Well, so the the reason they're doing this, from what I understand, is that all of these actors have additional movies left in their contract. They signed them to like six, seven, eight movie contracts and then ended up not using all of them. So in order to run out their contracts, what they can do is if they say do a six hour miniseries, that counts as two movies. Mm -hmm. So from my understanding, that is how this is happening. Mm well speaking of other things that are cool i what did we think of the 1970s flashback i actually thought when the car was going by that like we were like oh my god is that gonna be ego uh, from, <laughs> right from but no it was another form of ego it was stan lee um but uh, I, I enjoyed the 70s flashback personally i'm glad that the incongruity of the facial hair is what help trigger them off because that is exactly the kind of thing that bothers me when I'm watching period pieces. Like that is the wrong kind of beard. And also whatever. And like, yeah. And he's, and somebody like that wouldn't have a beard in that year on top of it in that context. Um, But I, you know, I think part of like being able to make us feel like we could really close, close the the book on Tony is him having that moment with his father. That was really well written. Um, And, and my God though. And Michael, Douglas, like what a what a great way to use the fact that we have just countless miles of footage of Michael Douglas being young that we can make references of when doing CGI to make him look younger. Like I, there was, um, oh my God, Frank looked at me as during the movie. People should probably never sit next to us during a movie. I'm realizing based on this, but you know what? It, it, our seats were pretty far from everybody else's. Um, so when he's like, when 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 Steve, in a moment of like showing again that Steve is a smart fucking dude, is like calling up, um, is is calling up uh, Michael Douglas and saying like, you got to go check on this box to like fake him out. And Frank, my, my husband, was like, is the box glowing? Were they experiencing a China syndrome? Um, <laughs> Because, <laughs> like, I, I, I actually, for a second, there thought the movie was going to literally make a China syndrome callback, but I, I guess it left that last that last stage to us. Um, yeah, um, I would. So, yeah, I, I, part of the one, one of the reasons I wanted to go back and look at the film again was to sort of look to think about the or sort of look at the structure. So, obviously, without you know, you get it the first time that your first the beginning is sort of the leftover section of it, um, which is as it's been called, where they're really dealing with the trauma and so forth. And yeah, that middle hour is kind of given over to the sort of victory lap or back to the future part two, which turns 30 actually, uh, in the fall. Um, the, the sequel, not the, not the original, which is 34 this year. Um, so yeah. And then of course the last hour is in two parts. It's like in the, the half of it is the, 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 the big battle. And then you get about 20 minutes of epilogue afterwards. Um, I think that probably in some ways, I, the, the, that middle section is the most controversial is the thing I think that's making people dividing people a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, the 70 was an interesting choice for one thing. Um, Robert Downey Jr. would, as I, when, when he, when, when, uh, Howard Stark says, I'm expecting, and it's 1970, I was like, what, did he have a sister that he never knew about? Like, cause obviously Tony's alive already in 1970, but I, so I, I no, Tony's not. So Tony's birthday is in May of 1970. <laughs> well, Tony's got a lot of, I guess, yeah, I he's mean, got a lot of miles on him then, I guess for. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a difference in the age of the actor and the character, but I, I want to say it's May 1970 is Tony's okay. birthday. Thank um, so yeah, so, uh, yeah, it, it's, 
it is interesting though that, that that so much of the film I think it's at the core of the film, especially that interaction between Tony and Howard Stark. It's like, on the one hand, it really, the, the film is tr wants to be this sort of meaningful exploration of really the most significant event in a, in a human being's life, which is loss, which is death, which is how do you move on? You know, I love the, the, the sort of uh, Fincher, the David Fincher sort of uh, um, uh, support group scene which, where Jim Starlin has his cameo where Cap is mouthing, mouthing these platitudes about moving on and doing his Cap thing, even though you know, and, and Chris Evans does a brilliant job of conveying it. He doesn't believe it. He can't, he, he can't do it, uh, which he reveals later. So there's that, right? It wants mm -hmm. to talk about sort of loss in this very meaningful way that is uh, true and truthful, and yet it's also a superhero movie. So it's also like, you know what? Fuck that. Let's, let's get everybody back, because we can do it. Because we, you know, because we can, which is... I think a very American, a profoundly American thing, um, you know, to, in terms of national cinemas, in terms of national identities. This is the thing that defines American cinema, almost uh, always has, that we find the happy ending no matter what. You know, we, even if it, regardless, we just, we refuse to accept the glum uh, ending that other, other national cinemas would sort of leave force you with, even though it looked like that's what happened in Infinity War. So, yeah, I really think it's interesting that the whole film is about loss and grief, and yet it's also a film where a man gets to, and I say this as a man with profound father issues around my father who died when I was quite young, and is also a father, so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm caught between all of these sort of emotions watching it. Um, you know, it's it's like, it, it, it wants to deal with it, and yet it's also giving you this sort of a, like, no, it's this, it's also this utopian thing of like yes we we will give tony his one you know final moment with his father uh the the final hug etc etc so yeah i mean i think that's really kind of where the movie's at and i think that's in some ways it might make the film not work for some people that it's trying to do both two things at once but i think that also makes it very interesting well I actually, and I, I'm not going to speak for Alana, but I suspect she may agree with me. I think it's not just an American thing. I think it's specifically a Jewish thing and a, Jew, a thing that got, mm -hmm. is in comic books because it's a Jewish thing. Um, you know, the, the whole um, continually telling stories about all of these terrible things that happen to you, but you prevail and that you mm. always come out the other side and the stories are always like, we almost got completely decimated, but we prevailed and here's how, and here's how we saved everybody. Um, and then looking back at the people who you lost. And so that's really been part of the root of comic book superhero stories from the very beginning, because that's coming out of a very Jewish storytelling tradition to begin with. Um, and so, you know, and obviously I think that's also influenced American cinema to a great extent, but it's very much part of the sort of, you know, cultural beginnings of superhero stories. Hmm. I think that's a good insight. Um, I want to uh, I want to shout out uh, one thing actually that that, that that Brandon's wife predicted actually that was mentioned in the last podcast, which was the the plethora of people who started saying Thanos was right. Like I was like, I don't think how that could possibly become a thing. And like I guess we we taped this pretty soon after the movie aired, and and and, and Brandon was like, my wife thinks that people are going to go around saying that Thanos was right. And I was like, oh yeah, no, that, that did happen. I'm. Uh, I, I, I'm glad that I feel like this movie is going to probably have silenced 
a lot of that, if by nothing else, than by narrative conceit. But um, I couldn't fucking stand that. It was just so deeply ignorant. Yes. I Oh, so... So the thing about the Thanos is right thing is that... I don't know if... I'm a lot, I'm assuming you are, but Brendan, I don't know about you, whether either of you are familiar with why he does this in the comics. Yes. The, in death, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So basically the reason that he kills half of the living creatures in the universe in the comics is because he's in love with death and death is mad because she's discovered that there are more living things alive today than ever have died in the history of creation and she decides that this isn't fair and there should be more death and so Thanos definitely kills half the universe in order to impress a girl who then definitely friend zones him. And then he uses his like weird God powers to turn her into this like creepy, like, I don't know. It's all weird. But anyway, it's, it's one of those things where like, I feel like it's almost sort of what they did with the movie was trying to come up with like a rational justification for something that's like such a fuckboy thing anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mentioned this on the earlier episode, but like, I, I was really hoping that it was going to be dealing with Thanos being an incel. <laughs> yes. Um, because that felt really timely. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I don't want to like cry over spilled milk, but like, I still feel like that would have been super timely, especially since I think that a lot of the audience seemed to fail to understand that Malthusian politics are completely bullshit. Um, <laughs> and so we're stuck. But I, but I do think that like, you know, Thanos is enough undermined by this story and, and, and really shown as an abuser. I mean, yeah, I guess we should just, we didn't really finish talking about Nebula's no, decision didn't. at the end. So let, let, let's talk about Nebula's decision at the end. Like, I really think it shows like how abusive he was to her and like what she had to brave and endure to, to become the person she, she later, you know, became to be. And I loved her playing foot, paper football with Tony. That was like beautiful. Oh, that was such a good scene at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It really was. Yeah. I feel like like for me, um, I just really appreciated all of the character development that that character was allowed to have. Um, She's a character who I feel like could have very easily been sort of like left to the side as sort of this like secondary, you know, secondary tertiary character um who was really just a foil for gamora um and i also feel like she's another character who in the again like in the comics is sort of you know she's really much more of a literary device in the comics and giving her her humanity, and that was one of the really cool things, was sort of seeing a story about rebuilding a cyborg's humanity um, uh-huh. was really, I think, really gratifying for me. That was one of the things I really did like about the movie. I think that they finally gave her like enough personality and real agency and... Um... They got to like service yeah. her acting ability. It was interesting. I was describing her performance as kind of being like an, a weird sort of anti charisma. Yeah. It was yeah. very hard. 
Do you know what I mean? I'm actually not familiar with Doctor Who enough to sort of compare this to her performances like Amy Pond or what have you. But like, it's a very very, like anti-charismatic performance that is like clearly a deliberate choice. And I think really interesting and makes her stand out from really all the other female characters and the male ones too. Like there really isn't anyone who quite comes off like that. I certainly I continue to say that uh, Scarlet Witch has no personality, despite the fact that the actress playing her is perfectly good. They just haven't given her a personality. It was interesting. They, 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 like Even during that big melee fight scene, they give a moment to sort of pull back for us to be like, you took everything from me. And I'm like, I know. And Elizabeth, you were, you were really selling me on that with what you're saying. But but nothing that's happened prior to this other than your acting has sold me on this fact. Um but yeah, sorry, I'm getting I'm getting off track here. But I don't know. I I I did think that that Nebula was impressive. And the thing is, I loved what ne- the storyline with Nebula from the comics, like to the point where I do still feel a bit of a loss with it. Like the whole you know thing from Infinity Gauntlet, where here's this woman who's being tortured and dehumanized so deeply that the other characters, just including Ignore our heroes, yeah. just forget that she's even alive and present on the platform that they're fighting, and then like they yeah. think that she's completely dead. Ignore her exact presence, and she just slips up behind them and yoinks the glove off his hand. It, to me, was like this Jim Starlin, you know, hugely feminist moment. Um, like, yeah, the men didn't even recognize me as a human with autonomy. And that is why I was able to do this heroic act and pull it out from them. And then, of course, immediately all the male characters go and target her <laughs> because they think she can't be trusted because she's, you know, a blue woman from space and they're sexist. But um, but I, 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 I really did love, I loved that from the comic. And um I, I'm glad we at least got some some not the same sort of story, but but did some justice by the character here. So on, the, on one hand, it was a surprise that uh, a bit of a surprise, just a momentary surprise. It's the best kind of surprise where it feels a surprise at first, and then you're like, well, no, this actually checks because this is Nebula, and yes, she has been at the sort of um, suffered this incredible abuse uh, at the hands of Thanos and what that does to to people. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. I think we are in this society just really kind of coming to terms with that in a way I feel like five years ago that character would never live this down and never live down the fact even regardless if she snaps out of it that she made this initial sort of betrayal but I feel like people are starting to really understand abuse and 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 trauma you know the trauma of abuse that they are kind of understanding like no this is you know this this is kind of human this is how people behave you know that this is she finally sees a, a moment where she can get the sort of um you know uh approbation or to show herself worthy um you know to, to thanos and you know and it's and it's teased of course in the very beginning with her sort of kneeling uh speaking up for him and her reaction her getting the blood splatter from him from his decapitation uh by thor um so yeah it's a, it's an interesting mm. you know again but again and yet she's also a sac- another sac- uh, you know sacrificed woman you know she kills herself essentially and you can look at that as like okay another woman who has to be sacrificed for the greater good and yet of course it's also this like she's killing this you know finally maybe she's now done she's killing the part of her that is you know damaged irreparably and 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 inextricably inextricably linked to to thanos um it'll i'm i'm i mean with so many things i'm kind of fascinated to see where they go with this and now that we are getting a james gunn uh now that we're getting 
in Guardians of the Galaxy th- uh, Volume Three. I you just I I'm <laughs> very fascinated to see where where all of this goes. I will also say I think one of my favorite things in the whole film is that when Star Lord is reunited with uh, Gamora, she kicks him in the balls, and I feel like that was for everyone. That yes. was like the whole that was from the audience, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> after what he did, uh, you know, in the you know this the the blunder he makes that it was so catastrophic. I was like that that, that was pretty perfect that uh, mm-hmm. you know that was the response he got um, after that but I honestly I'd forgotten about that I'd forgotten about that but it felt good to me just because it was like a reasonable response right, right. like I don't know you <laughs> get your hands off me but well, um, and it was exactly like it was so Guardians of the Galaxy first first Guardians of the Galaxy Gamora mm-hmm. reaction to yeah um, and then her, and then her, like looking at Nebula, and being like, "Oh my God, him!" And it was, yeah. it was so perfect. So as we're coming towards the end, I, um, I, I wanted to ask, uh, what was the hammer and anvil sound at the end of the movie? What does it all mean? Like, I know it actually is the sound of Tony making Iron Man, but what, what does it symbolize? What's the significance? Hmm. At the end of. I mean, okay, so end of the whole movie, like that's like you know, instead of having like a an extra moment where you see like, uh, you know, Nick Fury doing something, it just had like the sound of a hammer and anvil. So in the very first Iron Man movie, there's this whole thing, and I don't remember the exact line right now, but there's this whole thing where Tony like talks about himself as being the modern day Phoenix. And while I obviously we know that contracts have ended, I don't expect Tony to come back. I think that it's sort of a reminder that like there's always new superheroes being made. Um, Mm. I don't necessarily think that it's supposed to be a deliberate hint at something else coming. I, but I do think it's sort of a, like, this is where we came from. This is where we're going to go back from. We're always going to rise, rise from the ashes kind of thing. So we don't think it means there's going to be iron heart or something amazing like that. I don't I mean, I don't know that it means there's, I don't think it, I don't I see think what you're that saying, there though. isn't, but yeah. I don't think that. Yeah, that's I would say that it's more right, of right, a um, yeah, just sort of that again, full circle moment. Um, you know, just something to 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 bring the whole thing full circle from Iron Man. Um, it should be. I, I should say that you know, Chris Evans has been incredibly clear that this is it for him. That he's played Cap for the last time, and it was a you know, and in his whereas Robert Downey Jr. has been very much quieter that way. And apparently, from what I read, Robert Downey Jr intends to stay involved in the sort of MCU uh, perhaps as a producer um, but I, I think the door is left open and of course this is Tony Stark so there's it could very well be that you know he's he's copied his brain and there's an AI or something like that or just a, a, a voice but I think seeing him once again from beyond the grave in this sort of hologram and we had that in Civil War where we're looking at sort of a younger Tony from the hologram I think there's a good chance we'll see Robert Downey Jr. I think I think I put it at 50-50 that we'll see him again in some form as, you know, this sort of, um, you know, AI Tony or a copy of Tony. It could could definitely come back. Um, 
you know, in general, I'd say like, you know, again, I'm still processing it and, and everything about my feelings about it and the sort of unevenness and the things that worked well. And, you know, I think the, I will say that I think that the big brawl at the end, much more satisfying than I think the, the, the battle of, um, outside of Wakanda was, um, and it definitely had some moments that, you know, were, 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 were good and, and that you sort of had been waiting to see. Um, I just also really find it incredibly interesting that we're getting this the same we got this film the same weekend that we got the battle of winterfell you know excuse me for a moment to get into another fandom of game of thrones but it's like okay so we have these two battles that we've been waiting for for years we and and in both of them this is you know death is like the big thing that's kind of at stake here not in the traditional like if we lose we die but in the sense of the one one in one story they're literally fighting the dead that the their own dead will are, are potentially become their own enemies um and in the marvel films it's you know this personification of death you know or thanos that is that you know the word is re- the name itself is kind of connected to the the greek root for death and so yeah it's interesting and, and this is about bringing people back so on the one hand it's a sort of timeless thing about you know the are, are the ultimate sort of thing we're preoccupied with with death and yet also i can't help but feel like you know it's interesting that we're seeing these two stories about people just finally saying, fuck it, let's go to war, let's have it out. Like this long simmering sort mm-hmm. of thing that's been building forever and this sort of, you're seeing like the audiences are sort of like really enjoying seeing something where people just finally go head to head and have it out uh, after it's like no more threats, no more tension, no more waiting. Um, and, in a, in a, and we're not in an election year yet, but obviously it's coming and it just... It feels like what the tenor of the of the country right now, and all this incredible tension, and you, you know that does occasionally explode into violence. But it just, I, I I wonder how much this is sort of tapping into this sort of feeling that there's something coming that we're, we're there's a showdown of some sort coming. I mean, you do have a president who essentially is calling on his followers to rise up violently in his defense if something you know doesn't go his way. So, yeah, I don't it 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 all. I've been thinking a lot about that, about, you know, what our pop culture is sort of saying about our state of mind right now, um, you know, as a society. Um, obviously, these things are, are done, in a, uh, done a little with some lead time, but they also have an uncanny knack for kind mm-hmm. of you know just the timing you know whether it's or 2016 when all of our stories were about superheroes fighting each other and the you know the last time we had an election year um so yeah i, I that's that's kind of what i'm still chewing on it was interesting for me like this cultural weekend was like i i, I saw um endgame we watched the big game of thrones episode but um before that i had seen the the play Cradle Will Rock, which was, you know, one of the Works Progress Administration's uh, government-funded plays, which was then subsequently shut down by the government with armed guards for being too pro-union. And, like, there's this moment in Cradle Will Rock, you know, Ghana, being real about my own personal aesthetics, not crazy about the score, but very crazy about the themes. Um, they, there's this moment where he's ta- where the main character, where like where, where, where Larry, where Harry Foreman is like talking about like when the boiler makers and the iron workers like come together, the individual fingers forming the fist. And I'm just like start crying in the theater. And you know, this is a story in which like, well, I guess that's not true. The immigrant does does get 
that does get killed. But like, there's no death. There's just this feeling of like possibility and hope. And I just couldn't have that same level of. And I, I it's like you know, you're, this is the sort of moment which it's like, well, it was it was definitely a, a starker contrast to me, sort of seeing those things in the same weekend, even though they're they're coming from very different places and serving very different purposes but like shit you know i cried during guardians too i don't even love guardians too and i cried during <laughs> guardians too like i have guardians too was like sexist and racist as hell in its coverage of mantis actually wait i think you were my guest on yes. we're, we're talking about that brandon but like even so that movie made me cry and i don't know if i was just all cried out when i was watching this but i didn't cry watching this i didn't cry watching game of thrones I stayed up all night watching uh, Fosse Verdon. I don't know. It's a weird sort of drained moment in cultural consumption for me. Sorry to get off off topic yeah. there. I, so- I don't, yeah, I don't watch Game of Thrones, so I can compare this to She-Ra. Yes. That's about it. <laughs> um, you know, She-Ra, which had two black gay dads who have 13 children as a major wow. part of one episode. Um. I love and, it. Yeah. So, no, just uh, the, that's the other thing I watched this weekend. And, you know, and you know my feelings about Shira. Um, it continues to be absolutely delightful and absolutely full of amazing representation and amazing um, depictions of all different kinds of people and really complex feelings from characters who you would typically perceive as villains. And so I really like it a lot. Well, I, I, folks should listen to when you were on my show to talk about it recently. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm really excited to watching it. Um, so I guess, I guess we should probably wrap up. I don't know if there's any specific things people want to shout out that they didn't have a chance to mention. I've got like two, I've got three bullet points for me. And then each one of you guys, if you've like got three final bullet points from you, it can be completely random. But my, my three bullet points are hooray for a non-generic Rolling Stones song <laughs> being in the movie for once. Ooh. To, right? The elevator scene and Cap versus Cap are like the best fucking fight scenes in the movie. Oh, God, And then yeah. three, before the movie, there was this trailer for a long shot <laughs> movie. And I kept thinking that maybe they were finally making a movie about long shot from the X-Men. But alas, no, it's another movie about a schlubby guy getting with Charlize Theron. Also really love the Hail Hydra, the, the callback to the elevator. That was great. Um, yeah. Great if you know you mm-hmm. know what's been happening with with Cap and the, all that. So I really appreciated that as well as the fight scene. Um, my grievance, though, another grievance I have, Betty Ross, man. I mean, this is where, where you know, this and it would have been a oh, very yeah. organic, perfect way to reintroduce her. And I don't know if it's just this thing that no one wants to touch Incredible Hulk. We're all going to just pretend it never happened. But it's really a shame shame that they didn't make room for her especially because it makes sense they're doing you know they're doing science they're you know they need all the big brains they can have and she would it would have been great to have her back i'm i'm it's really kind of a shame that they they didn't get her back um you know as far as uh i I, i'm left wondering you know just on a sort of if if we're going to get another Avenger, when do we get another Avengers? What are their Avengers at this point? I mean, the the, the mm-hmm. base is destroyed. Everything is. It feels very much like they're closing the book. Clearly, we've got the characters, but I'm just curious if we're going if Marvel's going to sort of put them on ice for five years and start to develop all these new properties. Of course, the whole Fox you know merger, whether we like it or not, has happened, and probably it looks like we're going to get a Fantastic Four film before we get anything to do with mutants. So I'm it, it leaves me wondering, you know. Know, when we'll get another Avengers film, what that team looks like, if it's the people that we are seeing here, if it's, 
you know, we, we get more uh, gender balance finally. Um, you know, I'm very, very curious to see what happens. I imagine sometime between now and the fall, they'll do their big, like, Steve Jobs thing and start to reveal some of the titles. We already know a few, but, uh, yeah. Um, and it was, you know, uh, interesting seeing the Ancient One again. Um, not Again, not something I was expecting. Um, not to see her again, but of course it makes sense that uh, Stephen Strange wouldn't be there uh, at that point in the in the storyline. So um, yeah, yeah, that, those were sort of my last uh, last last thoughts on the film. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, one of the things that has been going on a lot in the communities that I've been talking. In are people um, people talking about first of all Natasha's choice to die, which we already talked about a bunch, but sort of questions about can it be fixed? Um, you know what if 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 um, if Bruce tried to bring her back when he had the gauntlet and she couldn't come back, did that mean she was already back? Um, and some things like that, and I, obviously this is all fix-it-fix fix type stuff, but, um, Alana, is it cool if I wreck a fic? Sure, go ahead. Rec- okay, so there's a really short fic on AO3, um, the author's name is Amy, A-M-Y, super easy to find, very short, it's called Fair Trade, um, and... It's a really interesting take on given the given the mechanics of time travel that we see in the movie, what might happen next. So I highly recommend it. Everybody should go read that. Um, and you know, beyond that, I felt like yeah, we we mostly covered everything that I wanted to talk about. I still don't understand why nobody just pushes Red Skull off the cliff. But um, <laughs> I know for good measure, he's still a Nazi. Just push him off a cliff. But you know, but yeah, I think we covered pretty much everything that I was interested in talking about. Oh, and so you know, you so much. Can, can I just say thank we also both. did so, not. We also got see mm-hmm. out of. Steve uh, going to Vormir to replace the Soul Stone and finding Red Skull there, um, and also when one replaces the Red the Soul Stone, does one get a soul back? If I mean, I don't I mean if you have. <laughs> That's yeah. exactly what the fic that I just recommended is about. Okay, so you know, who knows? They've left it kind of vague where they can come back any time they want and tell us this is what really happened. So you know, yeah. Well, thank you both. Um, where can our listeners find more of your work, T? I uh, on Twitter and all that. I'm T Berry Blue on everything. That's T like the drink, Berry like the fruit, Blue like the color. Um, and I will be running around TCAF in a couple weeks, and then I will be doing a couple panels at um, at NCS Fest in Huntington Beach. After that, so if you're going to be in any of those places, you can see me there. Cool. Uh, let's see. I'm Genius right. Bastard on Twitter, um, where I'm tweeting all the time. Uh, I have a blog that I will probably be put doing a very big piece about, sort of ex- expanding some of my ideas about Game of Thrones and in game called uh, Genius Bastard dot blogspot dot com. Um, and check out my, uh, yeah, I have a feature on Vimeo Sepulveda. It's free, uh, you yes. know, check it out. And, uh, yeah, that's where I am. Super cool. And as for me, I'm on Twitter 
all too much. Um, and uh, figuring, I suppose, if I if I tweet for long enough, I'll eventually be like that rat who uh, crawled around on the control pad of Ant Man's time machine <laughs> long enough that it accidentally hit the right buttons and restarted the universe. Um, and I'm at graphicpolicy.com and on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. So keep it geeky.